Welcome back to season two of Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. In this episode, Jonathan sits down with Cece Jones Davis. Cece is teaching pastor at the table in Oklahoma City, the brand new community where Jonathan serves as lead pastor. In addition to being a dynamic communicator, she is an advocate and singer-songwriter. She is also a graduate of Howard University, Yale School of Divinity, the Yale Institute of Sacred Music, Worship, and Arts, and a member of Princeton University's Black Theology Leadership Institute. Today, she joins us to commemorate Black History Month as we explore the power of sacred memory. Well, welcome back to Son of a Preacher Man, everybody. I'm so excited because I am sitting in my new apartment in Oklahoma City, and I just got here at four o'clock yesterday. My stuff is barely unloaded. And I have not only a guest for Son of a Preacher Man, but my first official house guest, actually. Like my, the first person <laughs> to see this, ladies and gentlemen, Cece Jones Davis, who is the brand new teaching pastor at the table. So we're going to get to work together and partner together. I couldn't be more thrilled. And Cece, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for taking time to be on the podcast. It's Absolutely. such an honor to have you. Absolutely. Jonathan, thank you so much for um, for just kicking it with me and um, inviting me into uh, the table. And I'm just so excited about what we're going to do together and how we're going to build life together. And I'm I'm so glad to be um, speaking to your audience today. So thanks. Oh, it's it, we're really I'm thrilled to have you. And we're yeah. gonna be we're gonna be a preaching tag team. I mean, I'm such a product of professional wrestling in the '80s, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I keep thinking about the Road Warriors and Demolition and all like. And I, I don't know. I'm just hoping at some point that we could be one of the great preaching tag teams. I love that. I idea. think that's Let's a good aspiration. It. Let's do it. Let's work toward it. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's gonna be so so fun. I, you know, so I was just telling Cece uh, off record with the microphones off how this is really true. Um, she was one of the people that I felt like early on in meeting here, there was such a just one of those rare sort of spirit connections that made me feel like this is where I'm supposed to be and that the people who are involved in the table really are just a small core group of people, but just extraordinary folks, mm-hmm. that there's just something remarkable to be done here in the city. So um, we're, we, we'll have a lot more to come about that like in future episodes. But Cece, I would love just to, by way of getting started, just to talk a little bit about where you come from, um, obviously you do a, you do a lot of things, but maybe even um, beginning a little bit like with your own sense of call to ministry. How, mm-hmm. how did you get? How did you hear? In fact, if you don't mind, I'll back it all the way up to my favorite Krista Tippett question. I would love to know the first time in your life that you can recall having like a conscious experience of the presence of God. Hmm. Where did that Where did that start for you? Yeah, you know that that is. Um, that's a great question, and I'm not sure that I can answer in terms of like the very first time. I just know that as a kid, I was always very curious about God. Mm. Um, I grew up in a very uh, religious-slash-spiritual family, um, and the matriarch of my family, um, my grandmother, you know, she was the kind that had devotion every morning before you could pick up a piece of toast, you know, um, just all about the Bible and all about Jesus. And um, I just had a very natural inclination toward um, toward the things of God mm-hmm. as a kid. And I remember being eight years old and going to school and so excited, you know, that like we were going to have our annual revival, mm-hmm. you know, at, at, the, at the church. And the other kids were like, um, why are you so excited mm-hmm. about that? Like, you know, so I was just always one of those strange kids who you know, was excited to hear people talk about God, excited about Mm. sermons, excited about um, music. But I think that uh, my grandmother, I think, would say that my experience would have been when I was around 10 or 11 and I was getting baptized in the Methodist church. Mm. And at that time um, in my church, they were sprinkling you. They weren't like you weren't um, getting uh, immersed underwater. Mm. And so... um, they, for some reason, and now it's my baptism, but they asked me to sing a solo for the event as well. And mm. and I remember being really, really nervous just about the whole thing, the baptism, the singing. And I was going to be singing this song. Uh, it's actually on page 202 of the of the of the red. We call it the red Baptist hymnal. Oh wow! Um, and it's it's um 
he holds tomorrow. I don't mm. know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't worry about the sunshine for um, uh, something about the stars will turn to gray or something or another. And um, when I was singing the song, I started to cry. Mm. And um, afterwards, I was so embarrassed. And afterward, we got home and my mom, you know, and my grandmother, you know, really wanted to know, you know, what was going on with me. And my grandmother was so excited. She's like, I think that was the Holy Spirit. Wow. You know, I think, and, and I, I don't know that it was the Holy Spirit. I think I was just nervous. I think my <laughs> nerves were just wrecked. Um, but I would, I would say um, my first, uh, maybe the most pivotal experience I had was when I was 13. I went out to Seattle, Washington. I'm from um, Southern Virginia. Mm. I went out to Seattle, Washington to... Um, spend the summer, me and my sister to spend the summer with my uncle. And he went to a non-denominational charismatic church. Well, this was my first time um, seeing an integrated church. I'm 13. This was my first time seeing white people and black people worship together. It was my first time seeing um, children, quote unquote, on fire for God um, in a very public and demonstrative way. It was my first experience with praise and worship music because I always sang in my church um, up until that point was uh, hymns. Mm. So um, I, I was that summer was really pivotal for me. I think it was probably my first time praying out loud. It was definitely my first time lifting my hands. And I remember the mm. song that I lifted my hands to first, and it was uh, this praise and worship song, There Is None Like You. Oh, yeah. Right? Wow. And... Um, the other kids around me and their demonstration um, just kind of gave me inv an invitation, just let me know it was okay. And from that summer on, I probably have never been the same. Mm. Um, and so I came home from that really kind of knowing that um, in, a, in a very intentional way, I wanted to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, and I have been trying my hand at that ever since. Um, so that was, it would, I guess that would be the biggest part of my, the start of my faith. Yeah, I love that. Was, was there a particular moment in terms of feeling called to minister or was, was that kind of a package deal? Did you sense something even then that maybe there was yeah. something kind of set apart for you? Yeah, I, I can honestly say I always felt weird. I always mm. felt that I wasn't going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a dancer, a psychologist. I always knew that. Whatever um, I was going to do was going to have something really big to do with God, mm. right? And um, that was scary for me growing up because all the, the things that I saw around me in terms of ministry were, were male, they were, mm. they were, and they were old, mm. you know? And so I, I wasn't a man, and I, I didn't like it. I didn't like what it looked, what ministry looked like to me from mm. from the pulpit, and I didn't see really other things named as ministry. Mm. And so it was something that I um, really ran from for a really long time. And then, um, but I always knew that I was called. It was just it took me a really it took me some time to accept it and to and to start living into it in a way that I could I could explore it. Mm. You know, I, I just kept that door shut for a really long time until my senior year at Howard University. I had majored in sociology. I was um, in my, yeah, I was in my last year. I was driving down Georgia Avenue on campus and I was sitting at a light. And um, I just remember asking kind of out loud a question. And I, I just said, Lord, you know what? What do you want me to do? You know, I've got to figure out my life because I'm about to graduate. What do you want me to do? And um, it was one of the very few times in my life where I know that I know that I know that I heard directly from God. Mm. And um, I heard God say, go to Yale. I know that was God for several reasons. First, it was... It was I, it was just God. I've never heard or experienced anything like that before. Second of all, Yale would not, was not on my radar. I would not have, I mean, I was an okay student. I would have not thought, though, that I would go to Yale. Um, and so I went and I applied. 
and I got into Yale Divinity School. Um, and that, that really started my journey to unpack my calling, mm-hmm. unpack my ministry, uh, um, relaxing in the notion that this is what it would mean to follow God, follow mm-hmm. Christ for the rest of my life. I would do it in this way. I would do it in these contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that experience was so transformative to me, for me, so beautiful for me so life-giving for me. It was, you know, one of the, the teaching assistants said the seminary is like, you know, having your faith in your hands. It's like a crystal ball and you walk into the door and you drop it and it shatters. And mm. the next three years is you're piecing it back together. Wow. And that was exactly what that experience was for me. Um, and so here I am, you know, years after, after that. And, um, loving ministry and would not want to be doing mm-hmm. anything else with my life. So interesting. And it seems like God, I mean, I think about almost even like sort of Elijah kind of stories that instead of giving you all these directions or giving you like this, you know, it's, it's not like a five-year plan or just this sense of go to this place. And when you get there, then I'll tell you what to do next. Yeah. That sometimes just being in the right place, connected with the right people at the right time, yeah. that then that that's, that that's where it comes as yeah. opposed to this whole, um, I'm so curious because I know that justice is so central to you, so integral to everything that you're doing. Did that, did you come up in a church environment where that was sort of already in the water? Because I know like in the church context where I came from, that wasn't really the case. It was almost more like I fell in love with Jesus. And I think that awakened me to other things happening in the world very much outside of my more rural Pentecostal context. Was it like that for you? Was it like, was it part of the church culture that you come from? Or was that something that you discovered? Like, where, where does that, where did that come into the mix for you? Okay. Well, okay. So first we know that like justice has always been such an um, integral part of the black church, right? An expression of the black church. In my particular church, I can't say that um, justice was something ov- that we were overtly um, interested in or passionate about. Um, I can say that my family has always been, I come from, and they wouldn't, to this day, they wouldn't even name themselves this way, you know, mm. but um, I come from advocates. Um, you know, um, my grandmother um, was a woman, a domestic for the, um, for the descendants of the white family that owned our family. Mm. My grandmother was a domestic for that family. And um, she, I grew up watching her interact with um, with this white family and always knowing that she was not, she was treated okay, but she was never treated as an equal, mm. right? Um, but my, that same woman, that same black woman who um, scrubbed these folks' floors and took care of their children and washed their clothes would come home in her uniform at, after a hard day. She would come home and there would be a family often sitting on her porch um, crying mm. and maybe she knew these people or she wouldn't but they would come in she would invite them in she would have me or my sister go get her yellow long legal pad and a pen because we knew what while they were there my grandmother her ministry was to write the obituaries for almost every black person in our county wow for 30 years that's amazing and she did that with uh for free for every mm. family so my my I come from a woman who, um, who knew what it was to um, tell people stories. Mm. She was a woman who knew how to articulate the very best about a human being mm. on paper. So I don't care who this person was, what they had done, you know where they worked, how much money they had or didn't have. By the time my grandmother was done. She created kings and queens on paper. Wow. And growing up with that example, watching mm. her, um, watching her mind work, watching her pen work, watching what she could do to create beauty for, for, the, for one of the last things that could ever be done for a person mm. was powerful. And, and she did that because... Um, she could. She did that because she was, you know, among a small group of African-American people of her generation that was literate in my town. Mm. And so, you know, 
people be, later on began to, you know, learn how to read and write. But my grandmother still became, was, uh, remained that person in our town because she was eloquent and she knew, knew how to talk about people and really was a, an artist of dignity. Um, so I come from that. I come from my mother who, you know, when we were, when I was four, our house burnt down. And, um, you know, my mother, over time, a single parent built a life, built a life back up on a teacher's salary in Southern Virginia, which we all know is not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And, um, she, she, she's a gritty woman. She built a life back up, but, but she built, she's got the kind of grit that doesn't just build her own life up. When somebody else's house burns down, my mother is at somebody at your door banging it down because she says, Louise, I know you've got two sofas. Harry doesn't have any sofas anymore. I need one of your sofas for Harry. She's one of those people. And my grandmother and my mother probably would have never named themselves. They'll probably think about themselves more as missionaries. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I name them as advocates because that's what I've seen them do yeah. all of my life is to advocate for, for other people. And so it really hasn't been mostly about the church I've come out of. Mm -hmm. It's really been about the people I come from. Yeah. Um, and then their experience and how my own experience is built on top of theirs. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I do. See, see that's amazing, too. I'm just, I, I can't get over the, like, the obituaries. I mean, it's like, so, it's so well both like, I mean, you're an advocate and... Clearly, you're helping people tell a better story with their lives than the ones that they may have been told that their lives are telling. I mean, I just said, like, what is the work of justice if not, not that, you know, like seizing the narrative to be your narrative that's as opposed right. to a narrative that's been assigned to you. So, like, it's yeah. just, and it's, it, I don't know, I mean, it's something that even feels like so biblical about that, that sort of way of, like, you being so, con such a direct extension of your family's story and calling in that way. That's and so beautiful. I tell you, you know, I think coming from a, a town, I grew up in the 80s, coming from a town that was still so segregated, it was a plantation town. So, you know, our main crop was tobacco. We had, you know, so being in that environment in the 80s was like almost like the 50s or 60s. It was still very behind. Mm. And so I think where maybe maybe some people in my generation maybe have lost a sense of responsibility toward like memory. Yeah. I, because of my environment, where I came from, who I've come from, I've maintained a really strong sense of memory mm. in terms of what my grandmother's life was, mm -hmm. what her sacrifices were. Mm -hmm. You know, this was a woman who graduated number three in her high school class, you know, um, but, but couldn't afford to go on to, to university. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, worked for people for the rest, for most of her life. Um, and then my mother was the first in our family to get a college education wow. out of 10 children. My mom was the first. And, and I, those memories are, are extremely important to me. And so the things that God has given me and the graces that he's given me, I don't even consider gifts, really. Mm -hmm. I really do consider responsibilities. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a huge debt I owe mm -hmm. you know, from the brilliant woman, women that I've come from. I owe, I owe them and the women before them and the men before them who went through terrible things that mm -hmm. I can't even wrap my mind around. I, I owe I owe the next level to them. Mm. I owe the next level in, in, in advocacy, the next level in voice, the next level in mission, the next level in Jesus following. Mm. I owe it to those, those people whose bones are, you know, are lying somewhere, mm. maybe unmarked. Mm. I, I owe it to them. And so I carry, you know, I can be intense and I know that. Mm. I can be really, really intense and I'm trying to learn how to lighten up some. But I do carry a deep sense of responsibility every yeah. day of my life. I was going to say, like, you know, you don't lighten up some, I mean, it's something I feel like it's almost like not, like not up to you. Like you said, you are carrying heavy things that were given to you. You know, yeah. you don't, don't like you sign up for these things. Yeah. Some things you're just <laughs> pulled into and, and, and born into. That, I'm so, because um, I know we had talked a bit about, well, just this being Black History Month in particular, and you talking about, staying connected to history. And I do think there's something almost peculiar about that um, generationally because it just feels like we're in a time where, to me, it's 
it's very American to be disconnected from any larger story at all. We tend to be, and I, and I mean, I, and I, I think it's true of a lot of Americans. I definitely think it's true from a lot of white evangelicalism. It's like this, an ahistorical people, we don't come from any particular place. This all started with us. Like no sense of continuity, history, like no connection to a past whatsoever, you know? Yeah. So I think it's interesting to like, in that, and I do think you, you are kind of an old soul in that way, you know, because mm-hmm. you're not an old person, but like there is kind of like just a real sense of connectedness to these very ancient roots. Yeah, but, but you know, I also think for me, it's like really biblical. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we do call ourselves like Judeo-Christians, mm-hmm. you know, and and memory is um, has is so is so vital to the story of the Old Testament, you know, laying stones in important places so that we can come back and memorialize and remember and commemorate. And and I think it's something that our Christian culture has for, for because we are so because it hurts to lean into the pain of some of our places, right? Some of our markers. Um, but I think that might be one of the reasons our, our Christian culture has kind of try to just move on, be a historical, be, you know, people that are brand new people who, who are not from anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that's biblical, mm-hmm. to be honest. And um, I don't know how we expect to be better if we don't know who we've been. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know how we expect to be to be better if we're just out here just will what I call willy nilly, just yeah. making stuff up. Um, so I, you know, I think it's it's very important for me to have roots. Mm-hmm. It's really important to me, even though I don't do it as well as I as I want to do it. To pat to even now as my kids are young, like pat, make sure they are rooted in something. Yeah, they know something about themselves, where they come from, their grandparents. That's important, mm-hmm. and um, that's probably like a Western culture thing too, because yeah. when you go to yeah. other places, like they can tell you like their tenth grandparents. Right, right. That's right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really biblical to have a memory, and we need to we need to remember. Yeah, yeah. Well, so talk to me a little bit about Black History Month in particular, and being connected to to that story mm-hmm. in a particular way, like and what that looks like for your life now. How you feel like you're you bring some of that into the moment. Yeah. Um, well, from where I am, you know, Black History Month is so important to um, our country. It's so important to African Americans in our in our country. Um, it is a time that for us is designated to focus on um, our hurts, to focus on our healing, to focus on our inventors, to focus on our authors, to focus on the people who have paved ways that that don't get um, notoriety or attention. Um, But Black history, again, for me, is like a stone, you know, a Mm -hmm. stone of remembrance where we set aside an intentional time to recall the the journey of Africans and African-Americans in the context of of America. And um, it's the older I get, the more important it gets to me. Mm, that's interesting. It, it the, I, I tell mm. you, I, you know, I, I've sobered up so much, and it has. It probably has a lot to do with what's happened in our country in the last, you know, um, ten years, uh, five years around the um, the shootings of black men mm-hmm. and and all of, all of these things. Um, but I find myself either because of those things or my age or a combination, I find myself um, sober in a way that, spiritually and consciously sober in a way that I, I probably never have before. And so Black History Month is a huge deal. It's a, it's a, it's a, um, a time when I want to make sure that my kids know Lift Every Voice and Sing, mm-hmm. which is known as the Black National mm-hmm. Anthem. You know, it's a time when I want my kids to watch Eyes on the Prize, mm-hmm. which is a docu-series that, tells the struggle of African-American people um, in America. You know, it's a a time when I want to go back and reflect Mm. and remember how far we've come because we've come so far. And, you know, when I think about um, um, people's struggles, when I think about my grandmother's struggles, when I think about, you know, people before her, 
doggone it. Mm. Grace has brought us safe thus far. Mm. You know, and how far we've come is just, um, it's remarkable to me. And it's, it, tells, it tells me and it really speaks to me at, um, about uh, our history with God. Mm. You know, black people's history with God has been an extraordinary thing. Yes. I mean, he's, you know, and, and the black church context where I'm from, we would say he's brought us a mighty long way. Mm-hmm. He's brought us a mighty long way. And so Black History Month is... Is that time for me to to pay attention? Mm. Now, I love I love everything you're saying so much, especially at a time where I know there are a lot of things to be discouraged about, but there also is this testimony too. There's this witness yes. of a tradition, and 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 that has come a really long way. And I'm um, I am curious though because like I always want to be sensitive to the fact that um, I know some of the people like in circles I'm coming are waking up to some of these realities for the first time, but I'm very aware that a lot of things happening in our climate culturally is, I mean, I always talk about this just being a very apocalyptic time. Things have been revealed, not new, just right. things that were underground or above ground. That's all. It's more overt. It's more explicit. It's, but you know, very well aware that it's, that it's not new, but it's interesting. Cause I feel like even in my own work in the last couple of years, and you know, I was in Tulsa for three years before Oklahoma obviously has, uh, great place in a lot of ways, but certainly really particular challenges. And so, I don't know, I kind of feel like in the last two years, I've probably heard more than I ever heard before, mm-hmm. that when I would talk about systemic racism, that that's a liberal idea. Oh, you must be a leftist. You know, like, you know, anybody who believes that racism still exists, I am surprised at the power and the force of some of those narratives right now and how much they seem to be coming back around at a time mm-hmm. where, I don't know, there's at least a season where, again, I know some of these things are just pushed underground, but it kind of felt like some of those narratives, that was just starting to move to move forward in a way now to where it seems like there's a lot of regression and pushback. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious as to what it's like for you living in a place like Oklahoma and um, how you deal with some of those counter narratives and what it looks like even to bear witness mm-hmm. uh, in the face of, of real opposition, but but in a way where, and again, not to like overtalk the question, but it's so weird because it's like, I don't know. I mean, I thought this, uh, there were so many oddities this year, even with Dr. King Day, because of course everybody's going to pay homage. Oh, we love Dr. King and he's, but because Dr. King's all about loving each other. And, you know, people ostensibly think that they understand or or that or that the world really has has changed that much mm-hmm. to where like the work has been done. So just curious what it looks like to you to, to to do what you do and to be who you are in the context of that kind of resistance. Yeah. Um, it's, um, it can be exhausting mm. to answer the question. That's how it can feel. It can also feel on some days extremely hopeful. Mm. Um, it always amazes me how, how we think about race relations in America when we consider that we only have a 400-year history with each other yeah. in terms of, um, you know, when the first Africans came to American soil. They came to American soil enslaved. They, we've spent 250-plus years within bondage. Then we spent another extra 100 years on top of that through Reconstruction, mm. civil rights, Jim, Jim Crow, civil rights. Um, the the Voting Rights Act of 19, uh, what is it, 57 maybe? Man, so a lot of times people say to me, you know, white people in particular will say, you know, man, why why can't they, you just get over it? You know, Mm -hmm. slavery was so long ago. But when you think about 400 years in the context of how how long the world has existed, how long human beings have been walking around talking on the earth, 400 years is not a long time. Yeah. 250 years of that relationship being slavery, mm-hmm. then an extra 100 being what I just named, and then, you know, kind of from there to where we are now in terms of mass incarceration and police brutality mm-hmm. and all the other systemic problems. Mm-hmm. I think that we, what the word that I, that I feel the most about what we need with ourselves right now is patience. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know why we expected that kind of trauma. Yeah. And in my church vernacular, that kind of demonic trauma yes. to happen for so, so long. Mm-hmm. 
And we think 400 years later, there would be no residue of that. Mm-hmm. When we think about how big the world is, how, how long the world has existence, we think we should, people should just be all right. Yeah. We think our systems wouldn't still have a residue of racism. Yeah. That just is unbelievable to me. But I think that every generation has an opportunity to build upon the good that our, our forefathers have built upon. Yeah. And so our, our job, as far as I'm concerned, is not to have an answer for this and an answer for that. Mm-hmm. Our, our job is to have a response. And a response and an answer are two different things. Yes. A response is what I can offer mm-hmm. out of the genuine, my genuine skills, abilities, gifts, graces. Mm-hmm. An answer is, is like too much pressure, I think, on anybody. Yeah, that's and good. so I'm not interested in, in answers in terms of race relations. I'm just here to make, have a response and to build upon what the greats have already started. Yeah. And I think if we all, black, white, and everything else, came to the table thinking of it, more in those terms, mm-hmm. it would be easier for us to lean in. Yeah. Is it painful? Yes, it's painful. But one of the reasons we can't make as much progress as we need to make is because we're not all telling the truth yeah. about, about what we're talking about. Yeah. And it's hard to build when you don't have a foundation. Mm-hmm. A foundation that is, that's, that is made out of truth. Yeah. we got to tell the truth about yeah. Our, our history, about mm-hmm. who we've been, about, mm-hmm. you know, our participation. We, we have to be able to tell those kinds of truths. So the answer is, the response to your question is, it's been exhausting. Mm-hmm. It has been hopeful. Um, and honestly, I'm excited and I'm, I'm attempting to become more patient with mm-hmm. our process as human beings yeah. from different ethnic backgrounds. Um, but I, I feel like I'm seeing, you know, even in the midst of such hard things, like I mentioned with the police shootings, mm-hmm. um, those things were, those things, I can't say they were necessary. I would never say that. Yeah. What I would say is that there is some good fruit that can be born from yeah. that. And that, that, includes the conversations we're having now mm-hmm. that includes the the um the organizations that are trying to do so much around healing and trauma and reconciliation and can i talk a minute about reconciliation of course yeah please so y'all i have a thing about reconciliation i don't like the word and mm-hmm. and here i'll tell you why okay I don't like the word because, of course, we get... And, Jonathan, you know, you probably know the Bible a little bit better than me right now, but... I don't think that's true. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, we, you know, when the scripture says that he has first given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you know where that is off the top of your head? Uh, I wanted to say Galatians, seems like. It's Paul somewhere. Yeah, it's Paul, <laughs> yes. It's Paul. Um we take that ministry, he's given us first the ministry of reconciliation, and we kind of run with it and say, oh, he's given us the ministry of reconciliation, so let's go fix this, this racial divide. Yeah. We've got to really consider the context of what that, what that scripture is. The context of that scripture, as I, as I understand it, was that the ministry of reconciliation was about restoring humanity's relationship with God. Now... We all know that back in the garden, Adam and Eve started out with a great relationship with God. They went awesome fellowship with God. Something happened and broke that, that fellowship. And the ministry of reconciliation is about recreating what, what had already existed, a model. So when we're talking about race relations in America, that's not the terminology. I don't think we should be using because... Since, we, since Africans got to America in around 1619, we have never had a, a, a harmonious relationship yeah. between the two. We didn't start off that way like Adam and Eve started off with God. Mm-hmm. They had something that they could re-go re, back to. Mm-hmm. We have to build something that has never existed. Well. And so our terminology, in my opinion... If we're going to be 
as honest as we can be has to be not about reconciliation, but about conciliation. Mm-hmm. How, how do we build something now and can keep building on, on that? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not something we can go back to because we haven't been anywhere yes. with each other. Yes. Um, why is that important to me? I, I, because I don't, you know, I know that for some people that can be like semantical. But that's important to me because I feel like words have power. Yes. And that's important to me because I feel like we will only be free by the truth. That's right. And if we if we're not talking telling the truth about where we've been or where or where we are, then we're just gonna still be trying to throw stuff in a, in a just throw stuff in a in a pot and we're making a mess. That's like, right. And so um, that's my spill on racial reconciliation. It's so good. And, and, well, because and words do matter because whoever controls the words controls the story. Story is history. Yeah. Um, the narrative rises and falls based on what words you use and how you use them. You right. know? So I think like that. I think that's incredibly profound. And um, I th- I was thinking while you were sharing too. Um, I mean, you use the even the way you use the word demonic, talking about you know the the, the trauma of a people. I mean, I just kind of. So, like, in my life, and I don't claim to be some, you know, especially woke white guy or whatever, but I will tell you, going back to, like, my early 20s, I had some significant experiences in my life that just made me, set me on this journey to just want to, to just do a lot of sitting and listening. The last few years, I go every chance I get to, like, to the Proctor Institute in the summer, mm-hmm. Marion Wright Edelman's Good. Children's Defense. So, people like the Reverend Jim Lawson and Marion Wright Edelman herself and others, like, just hearing those stories and listening. And so... You know, doing that, or like uh, last year going to Trinity United Church of Christ and spending a day there with Reverend Otis Moss III, one of my favorite preachers, just just mm-hmm. listening, listening. It's one of the things I've just thought a lot about the last couple of years, just from sitting at the feet of some of these luminaries and hearing a lot of these stories, is how how comfortable they are with words like sin when talking mm-hmm. about like injustice. Because it seems like, I don't know, you kind of, um, they're, they're such real... There's there's real evil in the world, and it always seems like people who it's the people who don't know anything about who've never experienced any kind of oppression for whom it's really easy to dismiss that evil exists or that's an actual thing, mm-hmm. and, and even you know the language of demonology, this idea because that's part of for me is so instructive about the civil rights movement is like there's such a robust spiritual center to it because it took that you you can't sustain yourself in a fight like this, much less move the ball forward. Um, you know, it's because, of course, policy matters and all that. I mean, all of that is so, is, is so very important. But there is, there, it seems to me, just such a necessary theological framework and a spiritual center to the work or else, you know, I always think about like um, when uh, that story in Acts, that it's, it's kind of a fun story when those guys try to, uh, the seven sons of Sceva try to cast the demon out of the man. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we'll just, you know, in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches and the demon roars back to the man, you know, Jesus do I know and Paul do I know, but who are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and I, I like, I'm just, so, I'm not a legalist about anything. I don't, I don't think that God is a punitive ogre. So I'm not staying up late at night worrying about the destiny of people's souls or, but I think especially because now that I'm, a, I'm around a lot more activists in my life. And yeah. it's like, I come from it much more from a place of like soul care. Like if you're going to do this kind of work and be in these kind of spaces, if there's not like an anchor for your soul and a story to connect to that's more beautiful and hopeful, like I just don't know how you sustain yourself in the midst of dealing with that kind of evil. Honey, let me tell you. So yesterday I um, preached a sermon on um, Luke 6 talking about loving your enemy, um, talking about it kind of in the context of black history. And um, black people have leaned on this scripture. I want you to understand that we would not have made it without the Bible. Mm. We would not have made it without a a sense of God experience so deep down in our souls. And that is that is where our demonstration comes from. Mm. That's why you go to black churches and, you know, we're swaying and clapping and stomping Mm. and um, that is how we have exercised pain and trauma Mm. Mm. it is through a deep spirituality Mm. and relationship with god Mm. and um listen it is the only way we have made it over Mm. and that is nothing but the truth for me personally um i have so much work to do around self-care that it's not even funny Mm. 
But something that God, um, I felt God say to me that I shared in the sermon yesterday, because it, it rounded out kind of talking about justice, was uh, we, we use the scripture a lot, um, Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require? But to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before our God. I felt like the Lord said to me in preparing the sermon, um, the, let me, let me get it straight because I wrote it in my sermon and I said it to the people. It said, um, the, the work that the Lord, what the Lord requires. So what the Lord requires also requires the Lord. Wow. Oh, that's so good. What the Lord requires mm. also envires, and, and requires the Lord. Mm-hmm. And those words have been with me for the last day and a half now. Mm. Because it resonates. We're out here trying to do what the Lord requires. Yeah. Justice and mercy and understanding and peace building. But if we're out here trying to do it without a grounding and, and, and for our souls. Without a sense of, of not just why we're doing it, but who we're doing it for. Yeah. If we don't have a well to draw from. Yeah. If we're not coming to a place of um, centeredness mm-hmm. and, for me, p- prayer and worship. Worship has never been more different for me right than right now. Mm. And But worship has never been more important for myself. How's it different? It's different because, uh, and I'll tell you exactly um, how it became different, um, so I watched a docu-series called The Last Defense, um, talks of, talking about the Julius Jones story. He's a man on Oklahoma City's death row. Viola Davis produced his story and put it on ABC and rocked my entire world. Mm. Um, I went to church that Sunday at a really popular local ch- church um, where the music is always rocking. And, as a, and I'm, I'm a worship leader myself, so you know that's a really important part of the service for me. And when I walked in and, you know, the energy was high and we were singing all these songs about, you know, you know, us and the Lord and how good the Lord has been to us and what we want the Lord to do for us. And I I couldn't stand for the worship service. I could not sing the songs. I just sat and cried and cried and cried because all I could think about Mm -hmm. were the people that I had never considered before who were behind bars or in different spaces who did not mm-hmm. have the freedom of this space to lift their hands, to worship God, to talk to God, to listen to this music, to hear this amplification. And it, it immediately felt so selfish to me. Wow. Immediately. And so I could not participate that day. I just wow. sat in my seat and I just cried. And I haven't been right since, to tell you the truth. Hmm. My worship experience has not been the same. I can't, ju- I can't do what I've done. I can't sing about. I can't sing about the same old stuff. I can't. It's got to be. It's got. I'm. My soul now yearns for a deeper, fresher water. Hmm. It's like. Hmm. It's like. It's like. Going to a store and buying a jug of distilled water, and then going to a store and buying alkaline water. Hmm. My my soul craves for that which will nourish me deeper. Hmm. And the things that the ways that we have spoken to God about His existence in our our world and our in our lives, I can't contain Him in that way anymore. Wow. And so I haven't completely figured it out. Mm. <laughs> I don't even know all of what satisfies my soul in terms of worship right now, but it's not that anymore. Mm. It's not the me-centered, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, not, it's, not, it's just not the me-centered stuff. It's just, it's not because we leave those environments and we feel so good right. about what we've just participated in. But there's a man on death row who may not need to be there at all. And... Mm. And that stuff is at the forefront of my mind. And so now how do I how do I worship with that as a part of my of my consciousness now? Yeah. What what is it that I want to say to God? How is it that I do I think about him in relationship to all of the hard things mm-hmm. that I say? Yes, God is so good. And I will always say that God is so great. Yes, he's a provider, he's this and that. But how can I now talk about 
those things about God in the context of these people. Yes. And how can I use that to then um, create an experience through song, through worship, through to that will help us all become more mindful yeah. and more intercessory around something outside of ourselves. Yeah. And Cece, I'd love for you to say in the last couple minutes that we have together um, a little more even about, because, okay, so... In terms of mass incarceration, like I, I knew on some level that it was a problem that I might have put on a list with a lot of other problems. Mm-hmm. It's really just been the last few years for me that I feel like I've come to really even just just start to grapple with the implications. I mean, even as we talk about, you know, we are a story people and history does matter and there is a continuity, whether we like it or not, with uh, kind of where we come from. I, I mean, I... I think it's still relatively new even for me to kind of see how many ways that, you know, even sort of a slave economy doesn't really go away. It just gets redirected like into something else. Why has, you know, mass incarceration and you and to say even a little bit more about uh, Julius, like why has this in particular become so central for you? Like why is this a pivotal, like ground zero mm-hmm. matter for you mm-hmm. uh, justice wise? Um, the only answer that to that for me is God, like I would not have known about these things unless I felt like God placed them before me at this particular time. Um, you know, one of the things when I talked earlier about patience, I, I, what's connected to that for me, I always have an imagery in doing justice work that every now and then, like like justice and the healing of the world is is cyclical. It doesn't all happen at one time. The civil rights movement, for example, um, highlights a cycle. But all that needed to be done couldn't be done all at once. And so I always get this imagery of the earth coughing up is wrong. Mm. And the earth can't constantly be coughing. There has to be a break between coughs and then God can can put his, God's hand back on it again and say, time to cough up some more. Mm. And that's what I feel like is happening. Wow. I feel like we're in a cycle of, of the earth having, a ter- have, having, having had a terrible flu. Yeah. And that God is, has got God's hand on our backs and beating the stuff out of us. Mm. In the most sweetest, compassionate way that yeah. God can, but beating the stuff out of us. Yeah. Hence, the manifestations of all mm-hmm. of these terrible things, like mass our awareness to mass incarceration, mm-hmm. to um, the death penalty. Julius Jones is the young African American man. Like I said, please go and watch the docu series, The Last Offense. Julius Jones' story is three parts. You can go to justiceforjulius.com to watch or the ABC app or Hulu also has it. But it's a story um, unlike, uh, you know, other stories, many other stories of some someone um, who may very well have been wrongfully convicted. Mm. And, you know, America, U.S. has a terrible history of executing people yeah. and then finding out later that they did not commit these crimes. In Oklahoma alone, I have in my work come in contact with two exonerees who've been set out, sent out of prison after um, one uh, was uh, spent 31 years in an Oklahoma prison for something he never committed. Wow. The other one spent 22 years, years Good Lord. Um, in an Oklahoma prison for mm. something he never committed. Mm. And, and so, and these Julius and these two other exonerees I'm talking about, these folks, their stories are amazing and powerful, but they're not unique. They happen all the time. And now, but now God has brought me to a consciousness about it through the Julius Jones story. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, this happened in Oklahoma. And I'm an, like I said before, I'm an intense person. And when I feel something, I feel it really deeply. And I, and I felt that I could not live in Oklahoma and mm-hmm. go about my life, go about my grocery shopping and pretend like this isn't something happening in our midst. Yeah. And so that's how I got involved with Julius Jones. And ever since I've been doing um, a lot of advocacy work. And maybe later on we can do our, another, we can talk later more about um, just that because it's so deep and there's yeah. so much. I'll, I'll say that now. I want to for sure do a whole episode just now. That'd be amazing. Okay. I'd love to do that. Okay. But I would say that I got involved. I've always been, um, I've, my whole ministry journey has been very 
geared toward justice. And then every now and then God will like, you know, turn on the light mm -hmm. in my heart about something in particular. Um, but I have to say that I'm, I'm the kind of person I don't get involved necessarily with causes. Yeah. I get I only get in, in, involved with causes because I'm involved with people. Sure. You know, I'm I'm Makes moved sense. by people's stories. I'm moved by their suffering. I'm moved by their oppression. And if there's anything that I feel I can do um, to help, I, I want to do. And so that that then gets me involved in causes yeah. like the death penalty, like mass incarceration. But by the way, welcome, welcome, Jonathan, because Oklahoma has the highest um, incarceration rates in the in the world. Yeah, that's not, wow. Not in the, the world. In the world, mm -hmm. and and the high, we incarcerate more women than mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. That's because we are a very punitive system. Yeah. We, you know, we believe we're hard on. We want to be hard on crime, and that. Um, I hope that you know we will we will take a really hard look, and I think we are taking a really hard look at reforming our criminal justice system. Yeah. Uh, see, so this all. So brilliant, and I'm I'm serious about having you on a lot more, like See doing that. regular stuff. This is so good. I, I just again I, I can't say enough about just the level of it. Just like such a gift and a spirit thing to meet you now and the stuff we get to together. I'm really glad you threw out a couple different resources, and I'll say this in different directions, whether it be specifically on you know mass incarceration or even anything connected to um, Black History Month more broadly. Is there anything else you want to steer people towards in terms of books, documentaries, like anything for people who are Grappling some of these questions maybe for the first time and looking to get more just just get more invested go deeper in the conversation Um, sure. I mean, there's so much that it's hard to even um, start rambling off things But if you haven't seen the docuseries 13th, yeah, please wow. go see that it's if you haven't seen the Khalif Browder Khalif Browder story um, I think it's called Tom produced by Jay-Z. Please go see that um, please read Just Mercy by um, Brian Stevenson. Please read Executing Grace by Shane Claiborne. And I mean, I could go on and on, but those are the, the things that, um, that have been really um, awesome for me recently. That's so great. Well, Cece, thank you so much for your time. It's Jonathan, such an honor. You. And I'm excited we get to thank do you. all this together now. It's on. So cool. It is on. It's on. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for being here with us today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more, go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to become a patron of this podcast and help us keep going, then go to patreon.com slash sonofapreacherman and we will appreciate your support. Remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will help you come to find the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.